To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg LP's investment research platform. In this podcast series, we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Brandon Barnes, and I'm a senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering energy policy, regulatory, and litigation. Today, we are welcoming to the show Katie Bays, who is currently the Director of Sustainable Investment with Adamantine Energy, where she provides political and regulatory analysis regarding risks related to investments in energy projects and companies. We're going to get deeper into what Katie's currently doing. Previously, she, she's been in a number of different places, that, and it's a kind of a fascinating background when you think of energy policy, and so we're going to touch on some of those as well. Um, but I'd like to kick it off by reminding Katie that we met during the halcyon days of the Dakota Access Pipeline litigation in district court in D.C., what what days those were uh amazingly that's still dragging on somehow um and that time you were at height capital markets and you're writing analysis for clients from dc with sort of a dc perspective um i'd love to hear how you went from height to sort of the, the role you're on now at uh is it adamantine adamantine yeah you've got it well, those were fun times, absolutely, for some people, at least. And um, if nothing else good came out of that litigation, it was good to meet you, Brandon. And yeah, so to your point, I've done a couple of different things in my career. I mostly worked as an advisor to uh, financial institutions, providing political and regulatory analysis related to investments. Um, but I've also a couple of times in my career, served as an economic consultant. I worked for the Energy Information Administration at the beginning of my career and then done a couple of stints as economic analyst and consultant. And I think that that perspective of both finance, economics, and then with the policy overlayer has given me a bit of a unique point of view. And while I'm not an attorney, uh, I've certainly had a number of opportunities to listen into those kind of litigation settings and uh and and i think in the the way in which i'm trying to sort of bring this background into a useful sort of uh, application with adamantine and with the capital markets today is that you know we're at the precipice of this big energy transition thing and we don't necessarily know exactly how it's going to go but we know that there's a lot of project development that has to occur um, and there's you know there are financial economic and political overlayers to that um, plus there's obviously you know this risk of litigation that i think everyone is very sensitive to so um, we try to kind of anticipate how that confluence of risk can come together and how that's likely to affect different projects and different companies um, and do that in a way that 
hopefully is helpful to people trying to make investment decisions. So that's, I mean, and that's, that's some of what we do as well, but I think it's your approach in this, in this position is interesting. Uh, I think, you know, even, even though I am that bad word lawyer, I, you know, previous life, I think, I think about sustainable investing and I wonder, you know, I should know what that means. That's, but it's not, it's not just, it's not a touchy feely thing at all. Right. It's not sort of the days of old of where we're talking about, you know, this is a better thing than that just because we said so tell, tell me if you can a little bit more about what that is and how you view it. And, and, and let's, we can maybe talk about some, some of the specifics. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to acknowledge that sustainable investment is not one thing and it's not a static thing and it's evolving. I mean, I think a lot of folks would incorporate, you know, principles like ESG, the environment, social and governance principles into the, the sort of, um, category of sustainable investing, but it's when I think about where you know it seems like a lot of investment firms are um, in, incorporating these principles of sustainability. I think it's more from the point of view of kind of doing a couple of things. One is obviously trying to manage long-term returns, and this particularly in the energy universe, this idea that we are undergoing a fundamental change, and we again don't know exactly how it's going to go, but there's a I think general acceptance that companies or projects that are designed for a sustainable future or um, maybe resilient in a sustainable future are likely to perform better over time. And so that's a sort of a core principle of what I would call sustainable investing. Um, and then there's also, there are other layers to sustainability too. There's issues like environmental justice and social justice um, that speak maybe more to sentiment or more to um, what you might call like a social license to operate in the context of a project. Um, you know, are, are consumers or other corporate partners willing to engage with a business? Uh, and I think that investors, I think by and large, I think the public by and large acknowledges that you are more likely to perform well as a business or a project if you can engage and maintain support from your customers, from your employees, from your peers, uh, from your various stakeholders. So to me, that's the crux of sustainable investing is that we're not just going to pencil out a company on, you know, in Excel and try to see if this looks like a good return. We're also going to look at the company's risk factors in a holistic sense and try to determine if this company or project is really going to be around in the long term. And I think it's a response to, you know, this very large degree of social and political change that we're living through as well. Well, and certainly we've, I mean, we, this is how we met, right? This is being part of these infrastructure exactly. projects that are going through something other than just, I didn't get a permit or I don't have the funding, mm -hmm. right? So I, I guess, have you, since, since Dakota Access, since 2016 and, and the courts, you know, have... I wonder, because I'm watching, you know, which projects are having trouble because of things like environmental justice or EJ, you know, how have you seen that um, from your role um, sort of evolve to become something that's more, you can put, not, not necessarily put in Excel, but like you can actually put some metrics around and really, really analyze. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think we have definitely seen, here's what I would say, because 
I think putting it into Excel is still really hard. So that part of the um, maturation of, you know, this idea of sustainable investing, I think it's not quite, my opinion would be it's not quite there, but I'll kind of um, explain more about what I mean by that. Um, the uh, environmental justice or social justice issues or the social license to operate um, manifest in a negative way. And I don't think that these things are always negative, but I think that we do particularly notice when they show up in a negative way is when you've got uh, mounting opposition to a project um, that, you know, may have some layers of support, like you might often see uh, projects do a good job of cultivating uh, very high level political support, uh, maybe a governor or, um, you know, even a, a national figure like a congressperson, but that the local community does not uh, support the project or finds, or maybe they could support the project in general or in principle, but there are particular aspects of the project that they find objectionable. And that is very often sufficient to stop a project. And I think that's what we are finding is, you know, even if a project is entitled to use some tools like eminent domain, if there's local opposition that's vociferous, uh, that's sufficient to wrap a project up in litigation for a long time or intimidate maybe some regulatory figures out of providing a permit or providing a permit as expeditiously as the project might need. So there's just a lot of different pain points. And so what does this mean for investment, right? And the, where this comes in, I think, with, within the framework of, you know, how are investors dealing with this problem and this headwind? It's honestly, I think it's by removing uh, dollars from the from the market. I think there is less investment in project development than there would otherwise be if projects had useful tools to navigate these challenges. Um, and if there was a, a generally agreed upon playbook for how to engage with communities in a way that directly addresses that local or, you know, um, very concentrated opposition. Uh, and then the last thing I would just say on the subject is that I think we often see this risk discussed in the context of permitting reform. But, you know, one of the things we've written about a couple of different times in our work is that permitting reform is not a panacea. You can reform the way in which federal agencies are supposed to administrate the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA, but that doesn't obfuscate the role of communities. And in fact, if we see a permitting reform bill passed this year, I think we probably should anticipate, because this is a pretty bipartisan issue at the end of the day, we should anticipate that the role of communities is going to be part of how we effectuate a permitting reform. I mean, we do, we see there's a, a local ban on uh, carbon capture projects in Louisiana right now. Um, we've got folks in uh, Wyoming where you've got um, there's state primacy over carbon capture. There's some local um, intimations about what people want to see from DAC or CCS projects. So it's not a red state versus blue state issue. It's a pretty bipartisan issue where folks want to have say on what goes on in their community. It definitely does come down to, down to local, doesn't it? I mean, you look at what you know we think of generally should be a positive from a sustainability perspective, when we think of a project, we think of like some of these um, CO2 pipelines, right? Let's run through Iowa. Let's take some of that ethanol CO2 out and we'll store it somewhere else underground. 
and the local opposition from the farm is is real and it's it's going to change things yeah. uh it's going to slow things down um so you mentioned the playbook uh do you think i mean I, we've got to be closer to a point where everybody recognizes that local is critical do you think i mean do you think there's still there are still companies out there that are just let's plow through or just or just get the project done, then we can apologize after. Yeah, unfortunately, I do. I do think that we are more. I mean, I think that the pendulum is swinging a little bit um, because of some of the high-profile conflicts that have broken out over different infrastructure projects. But I think there's a bit. Sometimes maybe people are not learning the right lesson. And for instance, you you know you brought up the um, long-haul greenfield carbon capture pipelines that are proposed throughout the Midwest. I mean, I would say you know, from my perspective, the wrong lesson over that to take away from the last, let's say half a decade, or maybe it's almost a decade now, but at least the last half a decade around um, energy infrastructure, the wrong lesson is to say that, you know, clean projects are exempt. Uh, clean energy projects are exempt from requirements to engage with the community. That community opposition to a project like Dakota Access was entirely entirely to do with the fact that it's an oil pipeline and that is not true you know i mean people are no more comfortable with co2 pipelines today than they are with oil pipelines um you know maybe in a very abstract sense but when you're talking about something going through a person's uh property it's, it's you know there's no difference really and and i think we have to approach projects from that perspective that um everyone's everyone's suspicion is valid and that folks need to be engaged early on in the project in the consultative process um, and that the the cudgel the sort of the stick that you've historically used to beat the community with which is something like eminent domain that you should not you know the stick needs to stay in the closet like the stick can't come out <laughs> and uh, and I do I do get questions still about whether or not projects can avail themselves of eminent domain, and I'll just be honest, I think that's the wrong question to ask. Even if you can, it's not its not a guarantee that the project uh, is going to get all the tools that it needs to be able to, to get done. So um, I, I'm a little less confident that we've learned all the lessons that there are to learn, but I think that time, I, I feel confident that this is an issue that folks are becoming more sophisticated on all the Certainly, time. Certainly, even especially with the, the new clean projects that are sort of novel because we, especially in places that we haven't seen them before, you would, it, it makes sense to get out ahead with local groups, state regulators that haven't seen it before and say, look, this is a good thing for this reason, not just it's a feel good story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think the laws yeah. are the same, right? Whether you're a natural gas pipeline or, or maybe a CO2 pipeline, depending on where you are, but, you know, whatever was used before to, slow down, you know, for somebody to, to avoid a permit on a fossil pipe, fossil infrastructure project, that law is still going to apply over to some of the newer projects too. Yeah, if not, if not even in a more onerous way, because the, the newer projects may not have that, you know, large statutory uh, or sort of the pool of precedent that helps uh, a company feel confident about what it's entitled to and the path it needs to follow in order to 
get the regulatory milestones it needs to hit. One of the things we kind of try to emphasize that I've learned a lot about from the folks at Adam and Teen and I find really compelling is this idea of, you know, what does meaningful engagement look like? And uh, I think Canada actually provides a really interesting model to that where we've really seen uh, First Nations communities join projects as equity partners or as project partners and their engagement as a owner in the project. Obviously, there's financial benefits that accrue to them as part of that function, just like there would be to any other partner in a project. And that that entitles or that uh, earns the support of this community so that the sort of the political powers that be, um, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau, et cetera, are not any more responsible for standing up for the First Nations. The First Nations are able to advocate for themselves. They, their interests are aligned with the project. And that has led to, um, I mean, those quite, I think, put really simply, those are the projects that are getting done. And so what does a model like that look like in the U.S.? You know, how can you, as a project developer, explore ways of really bringing communities on as partners? And whether that's an equity partner or a different kind of partner, you know, I'm not espousing necessarily an opinion, but like, how do you bring a community on as a partner? And with that partnership, you know, I think comes greater regulatory certainty. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, some of the, we've talked about this before, but some of the examples, I mean, when we talk about early days of fracking, you know, 2010, 2011, um, there was such a community pushback, mostly because people didn't know, right? It just, the, it, was, it was asymmetrical in terms of the information out there on on the dangers or the risks or, or the benefits. Um, but I remember seeing some of the the better operators get community agreements in place where they went before they did anything and they got people to come to the table and say, you know, we agree, here are the restrictions, here's the setbacks, here's what we're going to do. And, you know, they were able to do the project. They weren't sitting there, you know, relitigating Dimmick water or um, I think it was Pavilion in California. I, uh, those are blasts from the past. So yeah, I think I I totally agree that it it just seems like stakeholder engagement at a local level would circumvent so much of the issues that a lot of these projects see now. Yeah, I think that I think that's the right answer. And it, you know, I know that folks are doing it, and so it's not to say that you know go from zero to some engagement, but um, there are I think there are really good uh, diligent practices that make a real difference in terms of how productive that engagement ultimately is. You, uh, you touched on permit reform. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think? Is it happening? You said, I know bipartisan support because particularly because Manchin's on board to some, to, to a big extent, but. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, Senator Carper also put out a version of a, of a plan. So, I mean, there's some, it's more, certainly more bipartisan in the Senate than it is in the house, but that counts for a lot. Um, you know, my I think my base case assumption right now is that, yes, I think permitting reform does happen. Um, you know, the timeline of maybe July going into the August recess is probably a good. I, I Here's what I would I would feel pretty confident saying that I think we'll get a push in July. And um, ultimately, I think the if we see something come together, it's probably, you know, 80 percent Republican support, 20 percent Democratic support in the Senate and then maybe 
close to a party line in the House, just because that seems to be the way that that seems to be how how things are kind of going down right now, that there's not if there's not an incentive for House Democrats to vote for something, then they don't really need to. But but that more bipartisan progress on the uh, Senate side is how things are going to get done. So, you know, I'll be looking forward to that. I think some of the provisions in permitting reform that will matter to companies would be uh, the limit on the duration of the environmental assessment, environmental impact statements, limiting those to a year or two years would be very material. Back to our favorite topic of litigation, providing some sort of a limit on litigation, uh, 120 days or 150 days after final order has been proposed. Those are the two timelines that folks are kind of standing around. Um, there are other things that I think are less headline grabbing, but I definitely have have fielded questions from investors on things like, you know, whether Manchin's proposal to staff FERC better is going to go through because that people have come to understand that, you know, an understaffed FERC is a major headwind. So there are, there are other factors that uh, or other elements of the um, permitting reform proposals that I think will matter to people. Um, but the, the big ones limiting those reviews and limiting litigation that will probably that those seem to show up in basically every version of a permitting reform package. So I think that's we should expect that. And then the some of the accessories a little less clear. But I think it does sound like there's a, a decent chance of something coming together this summer. It's amazing to me because we are in this bizarrely partisan time that uh, more often than not, it seems like the Senate can just get its head down and work. Yeah. Yeah, we we would agree. I think that we were always thinking summer summer was the best shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm suspicious of it actually being material for project times generally. But you know, part of that clearly the courts have a huge role they've been playing in this because it's not like the agencies haven't been issuing permits. It's just they've been getting kicked back to the agency two two or more times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I think we're a suspect on on materiality there, but putting caps on times is is a good start for sure. Right. And I think you're right to look past that a bit and say who enforces those times, right? Yes. Yes. You know, and I definitely, again, putting on my pretending to be a lawyer hat, you know, I've had folks ask me in the past if um, companies or projects can file a writ of mandamus to try to get a a permit that they're owed. And it's like, well, if you want to get your permit denied, you absolutely could do that. <laughs> I, I like when they yeah. when they dig up the they really dig into the civil procedure. That's critical to know your writ of mandamus petitions. Yeah, so I mean, you've probably not seen that happen. I I actually think it has happened uh, not so long ago, but it's not the best not the best strategy, perhaps. Um, but look, I mean, they're. For some of these projects, they're up against it, right? Like I to thinking about Mountain Valley, mm-hmm. like they have said that their best hope is legislation, which has not been the best pathway for anyone to get anything done on any topic for years. Uh, but here we are. Uh, they just keep running into the Fourth Circuit wall. I know. Um, well, that's an interesting thing in terms of, you know, these sort of sleeper provisions in the permitting reform process that could actually end up being pretty material. There's one... I think it's in Shelley Moore Capito's language that would um, require the the panel, like the circuit court 
judge panel to be drawn at random for each yeah. project. So one of the challenges for MVP right is that they've been continuously assigned the same panel. And I don't, I don't ever wish to, you know, uh, assume anyone's intent, right? But I think that the panel has become fatigued with uh, the government, it seems, in a lot of cases. There's uh, maybe a presumption that the government has made errors in its work. And so obviously with pretty high degree of regularity, that circuit's coming back um, with, you know, with, with real problems with these permits that MVP is earning. And that is, uh, that's been a real challenge. So I wonder, I wonder if that, you know, getting fresh eyes on each round of litigation, if that could end up actually being kind of helpful for future projects. But I think, you know, if I'm a project developer, I'm going to try to avoid by hook or by crook going through the same series of problems that uh, that MVP has had to deal with. Yeah, I'm thinking about where I'm going to build, and it's not it's not going to be through the through the red wall of, of New York. That I say red because in my heat map of how many days it takes to get approved, it, New York is it's either infinity or zero because you're not getting approved. And then right. you know the Mid Atlantic has sort of moved in that direction. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I. Like MVP could be its own its own podcast several times over. Um, it has kept me relevant for years, so I can't besmirch it too much. But I will go further and say that I do think the Fourth Circuit has gone beyond where I would think, from a legal perspective, uh, they should go in sort of second guessing agency work. But that's showing my stripes a little bit too much. Um, no, I mean I think I don't think you're alone. I no, I don't, there, no. But I don't think you're alone in that conclusion at all. I, that's, I appreciate that. I've, I've heard from certain clients many times over that in different language uh, that I am on the right track. <laughs> um, so I think let's get back to a little bit more uh, on the sustainable, I, mm -hmm. although obviously this is all plays into that sort of analysis and that assessment. Um, I, I'm because one of the things we think about a lot, obviously, is for our clients, you know, how is policy pushing around or nudging markets and whether it's specific companies or industries or sectors, you know, that's what we're all trying to figure out. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you know, when you guys look at something like um, the IRA, right, and or, uh, you know, how are you communicating your thoughts to clients on that. What do you, what's what's most interesting to you in there, and and what are you getting most asked about off that topic? I think. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the transition from the previous conversation, which is basically all of the sticks that have driven investment firms to try to incorporate principles of sustainability that attempt, I I think in a really general way, attempt to anticipate some of those regulatory and political and social sticks. So that's what we think sustainable investing is, is trying to be responsive to less obvious forms of social pressure um, when making investment decisions. The IRA is the carrots. So why pursue sustainable investing? Why incorporate sustainable investing into your investment strategy? There's a lot of reasons, you know, your investors might be telling you to, but one of the big sort of overarching ideas here is that you're trying to respond to those regulatory and social sticks 
and you're also trying to take advantage of some of these um, carrots and incentives. And the state of play for the IRA, I think, is very interesting right now in the sense that um, we're, I think, waiting collectively, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're know, waiting for additional guidance from um, the IRS on how companies will be able to apply some of the really big ticket IRA incentives like the hydrogen tax credit. And you can hear from companies, uh, I think, how their strategies are, they're priming their strategy to try to take advantage of those tax credits once the certainty is there. Um, but folks are, I think, being very conservative generally in their strategy right now, assuming that, you know, we're not we're not going to presume that IRS is giving us the full value of this tax credit until we see that they are. And so that's a critical, that's a critical kind of place that we're in. There's a huge amount of what I, as and this is putting an economist hat on, the huge amount of, I think, economic misinformation that's going out, it's being put to the IRS on the uh, cost competitiveness of green hydrogen, particularly green hydrogen with all of these requirements layered onto it, things like additionality uh, for the renewable energy and uh, matching, temporal matching or lining up the uh, energy use of the electrolyzer with the renewable energy. You know, I'm seeing um, some more left leaning or progressive organizations, you know, putting out economic analyses saying that green hydrogen facilities with all of those requirements strapped on top of them are cost competitive. And really the reality is that they're not, and they're assuming way too high of capacity factor for those electrolyzers. Um, that's impractical. And if you really talk to anyone who's actually looking at developing those electrolyzers, these things are not, they're, they're not economic with the, uh, with like the most strict interpretation of the 45V tax credit. So that's my little spiel and I won't, I won't become too much of a nerd here, but it was uh, looking at some of that yesterday. It was really surprising to me what the assumptions were that were going in. Um, so surprising that people are talking their book. Surprising to me that, um, that somebody would assume that an electric very specifically that an electrolyzer with hourly temporal matching and a requirement of additionality for all of its electric generation. So you've got all the CapEx associated with that renewable generation that's associated. Now that's also planted with the, um, with the CapEx for the electrolyzer, all of these things, and that the electrolyzer is running at an 85% or 88% capacity factor. Like that this is not realistic. The, the amount of capital, the return on capital that's being projected, the uh, price that they were modeling that the excess power could be sold for, all of these things are like the rosiest possible assumptions that you're using to generate a conclusion that green hydrogen is $3 a kilogram, which is still, by the way, something like $24 a million BTUs. So wildly expensive relative to natural gas. So this this formula is not a realistic set of assumptions. Um, and when IRS is getting information like that, you know, I think there's a realistic concern in the industry that they're going to see that and say, oh, great, you know, let's make the let's make the 45 e tax credit as restrictive as possible um, because someone put together a really 
misinformed economic model saying that this will work. So this is the nerdy part of the discussion. Everyone will be tested later on what you've learned, but um, but I think I think all of these things make folks generally feel very uh, you know a little bit uncertain about how the how some of the provisions of the IRA will be implemented. It's obviously very political, and we've seen Senator Manchin come out critically against uh, some of the ways that IRS has interpreted those provisions. So it's, it's by no means it's choppy waters. Absolutely, it's not a smooth sailing uh, part of the process for anyone trying to develop infrastructure under the IRA. But at the same time, there are other, there are other uh, challenges. And I do hear too from companies and from project developers that are looking at developing, let's say, carbon capture uh, and would normally, I think, want to, you know, like a project would normally want to develop that project using, you know, non-recourse project finance, and over, you know, over a 20 year life for the asset or something like that have, you know, this 20 year debt associated with it. Um, and instead of the market really being open to that, they're hearing more often that companies that might be seeking to develop these projects are looking at doing it on the balance sheet. So using shorter term, more expensive corporate debt to finance. And those, those things raise the cost for clean energy development too. So I think there's a level of maturation on the project finance side that's going to happen as these IRA-backed projects become more common. Um, but there are, there's, it's more than just the IRS is, is, I guess, all I'm trying to say, that that uncertainty is creating other headwinds to investment uh, for the kinds of projects that the IRA is meant to incentivize. That's, I mean, that's a great perspective, I think, because you don't hear that very often. But, you know, what we see is just a bunch of projects being proposed and everybody's snapping up smaller, you know, competitors or, or people in the project space and full steam ahead. We've got an ammonia plant. It's time to build some hydrogen, build some carbon capture. Um, so that's that's interesting to hear. Is there, what do you think, I mean, uh, apart from, you know, real guidance out of the federal government. Is there, you know, does it keep marching forward? Is it, is there some sort of breaking point where people say, yes, we've got it. Let's, let's plow all the investment into it. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And I, I'm not sure what a, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's always, there's a status quo until there's not, this is the status quo today and eventually it's going to change and will it change in six months or 12 months? It's hard to say, but uh, one of the issues I think that the market is grappling with right now is what's the role of energy? What is the role of the conventional energy complex in the transition? And the things that we tend to hear is that companies are simultaneously coached by their investors that they need to, be transition ready, so they should have credible plans to reduce their emissions. Um, you know, if they can obtain certification for their gas, they should pursue that. But that they also, but the investors generally also want these companies to stay in their lanes, and you know, not reach too far outside of their core business pursuing transition strategies. And that's probably not bad advice because folks tend to, you know, you tend to make mistakes 
if you go outside of your area of expertise, but that I think obfuscates the reality that a lot of the transition projects are well within the oil and gas industries or the midstream industries area of expertise, transporting hydrogen, um, certainly carbon capture, sequestration, geothermal, all of these things are well within the area of expertise. I mean, you can look at our, you know, refining sector, obviously, is a great example of uh, profound capital deployment, safe capital deployment, efficient operation of, um, of complex infrastructure. And so there's clearly a role to play for our existing industry, but it's, we're in a little bit of a, I think, a waiting space where the market is sending maybe not quite mixed messages, but um, but somewhat uh, tentative messages to the oil and gas industry about how outsides of a role it ought to play in the transition. So one of the things I think we really try to help companies do is to look at what is an authentic and uh, very practical way for you to push the envelope on engagement in the transition or, or whatever you want to call it, but investment in a responsible way um, that's consistent with the company's larger financial objectives. Yeah, it's got to be tough, especially in the upstream space, because your the messaging on investment, particularly the federal government, has not been positive. Uh, and then sometimes it's confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to, to then turn and try and figure out what the investment looks like for the transition at the same time is probably a difficult pill to swallow for some of the, some of the teams. Um, but you, you've been looking at some of that in Colorado, haven't you? Yes. So uh, Adam and team, the firm is based and was started in Colorado. Um, and so while it's a national firm and there are folks all over the country, there's, um, there's a good Colorado presence. And Colorado is actually a really interesting example of a place where you've had a very high level of community engagement and how that has led to an evolution in sort of the regulatory regime so that companies now really do engage with the communities early and often and, um, and are able to uh, earn community support for project development programs. And I was pretty proud to see that uh, recently some of our good friends at RBN Energy did a nice piece discussing how the regulatory regime in Colorado has gone from almost unmanageable to very certain and clear and, and navigable for companies. And so I think that's it's a great example of how you can effectively evolve this sort of adversarial relationship into one that's supportive of development as long as the development's occurring on community terms. So Colorado is a great example of this. Um, it's also a great example of a space where companies are very eager to engage constructively in the transition or in the uh, efforts to decarbonize the economy. Colorado is, has passed legislation seeking to decarbonize the economy, and so now the industry is, is working to, to uh, optimize the role that it can play in that process. And, you know, I think one of the one of the important political goals, if I could kind of speak to that side, which is not not where investors usually uh, go, but one of the real important political goals, I think, would be that we can pivot away from this goal of how do we eliminate fossil fuels to how do we eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and acknowledge that whether and to whatever extent 
the fossil fuel industry has a role to play in that, if we've eliminated emissions, then I think we've accomplished the goal, right? We've, we've hit the mark. So I think, you know, taking a bigger tent approach to how do we effectively meet all of our energy needs while eliminating emissions is, is really the big hard challenge that I think we're going to have to face in the 2020s. Well, I don't think I can sum it up any better than that. So I think, um, you know, I'll just try and close it out with uh, a trivia question about Nebraska, if I can. Oh, sure. Yeah, why not? Because you are currently in Nebraska. That's right. What powdered drink mix is the official state soft drink of Nebraska? So I Where thought it was you were going to ask me a hard one, Brandon. Oh. <laughs> this, I think I would lose my residency if I could not answer this question. It is Kool-Aid. You're kidding me. You knew that. Of course. I'm impressed. It was invented in Kearney. Well, that's more information than I have from the internet. So obviously, <laughs> I can't back check you on that. That's impressive. Well, thank uh, you. You get to keep your corn Husker I get to card. keep my corn hat and my Husker football ticket. There thank we God. go. That's good. Yeah. Well, listen, Katie, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate the informative conversation. I think it's valuable for all of our clients to hear what you have to say on, on the topic of sustainable investing and energy policy generally. That will be it for us in Boats and Verdicts podcast. It's hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. Again, I'm Brandon Barnes. I'm an analyst here at Bloomberg Intelligence. You can find us on the terminal anytime you need any of our critical research for your investment thesis or anything else. Thanks so much. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.